some of the greatest art that's ever been made in the last century was art that would be considered children's media. And I'm lucky to have little girls. I get to I get to watch guilt-free kids' movies, and some of them are really great, and read children's books to them. Um, children's art is free from that snooty, sort of highbrow pretentiousness that adult art sometimes gets tagged with. Um, it's often this delightful blend of bluntness and beauty. I think of things like um, Pixar Studios, who ma- they're the ones who made Toy Story and Monsters, Inc., and Finding Nemo and WALL-E and Inside Out. Really charming stories for kids, supposedly, that have real emotional weight and real social commentary and, and connect with adults, often even more than with kids. Uh, I guess in Christian art, the equivalent would be VeggieTales. Um, I'd rather watch a half hour of Bob and Larry kill- children's show than any any other adult Christian programming. That's the best Christian programming there is, VeggieTales. Another example might be Calvin and Hobbes. There is no better running philosophical commentary on the absurdities of our Western world in the 20th century anywhere. And it was found in the funny pages, in the comic pages, this lowbrow art form. Um, it was art for children that only got more uncommonly beautiful and more unrepentantly idealistic and more unendingly hilarious when read as an adult. It just got better as you moved into adulthood. Just a really good example of art for children that's best for, for grown-ups. Well, this morning we're going to, A, continue our review of the book of Acts, while B, recognizing the Advent celebration of joy, uh, all through C, the lens of one of my two all-time favorite Christmas movies. I really wanted to work Elf into this series. That might be my favorite Christmas movie. If, it, if Elf's not my favorite, this one is. Um, but I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't stretch it and make it work. But we're going to watch one of my all-time favorites, just a clip from it. And this movie happens to encapsulate everything I've mentioned about children's art that grown men and women can appreciate, sometimes even more than the kids. In fact, this movie is extra special because it's a work of art that combines the skills of two very different uh, children's artists, one that dabbled in the area of children's television and one that dabbles in the area of children's literature. Uh, Dabbles is the wrong term. They were the masters of it. Um, In other words, the makers of the funniest cartoons of all time, Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner, all those Looney Tunes cartoons, uh, utilized the work of the greatest children's author of all time, and I will not argue about that. That is not that is inarguable. This is he's the best. Okay, don't even try to present any other argument to me. He's the best. And so when Chuck Jones, the director and producer of Looney Tunes, tackled a book by Dr. Seuss, the result was perfection in the form of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And of course, I'm talking about the 1966 cartoon television special, not the Jim Carrey remake in 2000. That one's garbage. I'm talking about the, the cartoon that brought us the single greatest gif of all time, <laughs> when the Grinch got an idea, an awful idea. The Grinch got a wonderful, awful idea. I love that. I'll just let that play. <laughs> like Ebenezer Scrooge, the Grinch is so timelessly popular because his name is synonymous with a particularly cheerless, anti-holiday disposition. If someone is a Grinch, if someone is a Scrooge, They hate Christmas, right? We know this. We understand this. That's what it means to be a Grinch. That's because the Grinch is best remembered for his surly hatred of the purity of those charming little Who's down in Whoville who live just down the mountain from him. The most familiar song in the Grinch isn't the lovely, happy, joyful little It's not that one. The most famous song in the Grinch's whole Christmas is 
you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch, Boris Karloff. Um, and you can picture probably the, the titular character slithering around on the floor in his ironic Christmas or Santa outfit, stealing presents and food and the Christmas tree and even the logs from the fire and the last crumb that even a mouse would eat. He takes it all because he resentfully hopes that it will ruin the Who's entire joyful demeanor. He hates the joy of Christmas. Being a bitter, lonely, self-imposed exile has shriveled up his heart, and the thought of rejoicing choirs and happy memory-making and festive feasts makes him want to puke. And so, dressed as jolly old Father Christmas, he steals all the trappings of Christmas right out from under him. It's even in the name, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. When we think of the Grinch... We think of the green or the red-eyed, green-furred, black-hearted character whom we meet at the beginning of the story. But that's not how the Grinch ends. It's not how the story ends. Despite the Grinchy Grinch um, being the most recognizable Grinch, the Grinch actually undergoes a serious transformation, which leads him to lay down his Grinchiness. And I would propose a new definition for the word Grinch, what it means to be a Grinch. We're going to watch a four and a half minute clip that highlights this transformation and then we're going to discuss its relevance for the book of Acts and the season of Advent. Popo to the Who's, he was grinchily humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the Who's down in Whoville will all cry, Boo-hoo. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. He paused, and the Grinch put a hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, then it started to grow. sounded glad. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. He puzzled and puzzed till his puzzle of a saw. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. 
Christmas came through, and the Grinch found the strength of ten Grinches, plus two. And now that his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light. With a smile in his soul, he descended Mount Crumpet, cheerily blowing hoo-hoo on his trumpet. He rode into Whoville, he brought back their toys, he brought back their floof for the Hoo girls and boys. He brought back their snoof and their tringlers and fuzzles. Brought back their pantukas, their dafflers and wuzzles. He brought everything back, all the food for the feast. And he, he himself, the Grinch, carved the roast beef. The reason how the Grinch stole Christmas is a timeless holiday classic beloved by children of all ages um, is because the meaning of the name Grinch changes over the course of the movie. The heart of the story of the Grinch is found in how the Grinch finds his heart once again. There is a delightful sense of redemption that simultaneously underlines and undermines the empty materialistic, consumeristic, individualistic busyness that Christmas often devolves into. In the end, the Grinch stops being a Grinch and learns to embrace the joy of the season, a joy which has nothing to do with ribbons or tags, packages, boxes, or bags. The Who's can take or leave any of these things. They don't care about pampoozlers or wuzzlers or I don't know what those words are, any of those things. In fact, despite experiencing illegal home entry and breaking and entering and, and theft on a town-wide scale, they all gather uh, the next morning in the town square around the Christmas tree, join hands, and rejoice. Um, it's not the typical reaction one might expect, whether in cartoon form or in real life, but the beautiful message is clear. Christmas has nothing to do with stuff. Stuff can bring only mere happiness, and mere happiness has never changed anyone's heart. Happiness is never enough to change anyone's heart. Instead, Christmas is about joy, the joy of belonging, the joy of gratitude. Joy is what transforms the grinchiest character in cinematic history into a reveler who returns stolen presents and rights his wrongs and sits at the head of the table to carve the roast beast. And that... That sounds a little bit familiar to those of us who've studied, been studying Acts 2, uh, Acts 2 and Acts 4 and a few other places. Last week we talked about hope, and the hope of reconciliation offered by the dual arrivals of the Christ child at Advent and the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In Acts 2, immediately after the crowds respond to the message of hope by believing in Jesus and repenting and being baptized, Acts 2 says this. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In responding to the Holy Spirit, a few very Grinch-like things happen. First of all, they gather themselves together to sing and eat. They feast together. They share all their meals together. 
Second of all, they freely give away their stuff so that everyone has all they need. Just like the Grinch riding down in his sleigh and he starts tossing everything out of the bags onto the Christmas tree and all their toys back to the little who girls and boys. That's what they did too. They gave their stuff freely away because they have all they need. They were glad and sincere and they lifted their voices in jubilation just like the who's in Whoville. In Acts 4, we have a very similar recap of the health of the early church and the symptoms of that health are nearly identical. It says in Acts 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone in need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, and we'll hear more about Barnabas in the coming chapters of Acts as we return to our series in January. Um, Barnabas sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So it sounds, the end of chapter 4 ends very much the same as the end of chapter, chapter 2. This is them responding with joy. Here the emphasis, however, is placed even more strongly on the giving of possessions. They responded by giving what they had, so much sold that they sold houses and sold fields and gave the money to the apostles so that nobody would be in any need. They were like a bunch of Santa-clad Grinches in the middle of Whoville, tossing out everything. Who needs it? Come get it. It's a beautiful picture. And the reason they do that is because they're responding to God's grace by giving joyfully. They're responding to God's grace by giving joyfully to others, to those in need. That's what makes Barnabas such a noteworthy character. He, like the Grinch, was once an enemy. He was a Levite, a leader of of God's people Israel. And from what we know of the leaders of Israel, they haven't been too favorable towards Jesus and his people. There aren't a whole lot of positive examples from that group of people. Levites, priests, Sanhedrin. It's usually negative. But he was a Levite, one of the Jewish leaders. Um, But Barnabas was transformed, like the Grinch, by love and by acceptance, and like the Grinch, responds to that grace by giving freely and sacrificially. This was the defining trait of the first church. They understood that the proper response to God's free gift of grace was to give free, gracious gifts in return. Stuff mattered less, and people mattered more. That was the defining trait. They responded to God's gift of grace by giving gifts freely in return. Stuff mattered less, people mattered more. Is there a more Christmassy message than that? That stuff doesn't matter. It's all about the people in your life. And when I say that they experienced God's grace, I really mean it. Let me illustrate further. In Acts 2, the joyful response, where it first says that they they gathered together all the time and gave everything they had, that was a response to something specific. Um, It was a response to the saving grace of God arriving for everyone. The Holy Spirit arrives. Peter gives this sermon that says what they have to do, and so they respond by giving all that they have, rejoicing. Jesus' life, death, death, resurrection, and glorification represents the fulfilled promise of God to his people to draw them back to himself and save them from sin and death. And so they're responding to that. They see the plan unfolding before their very eyes. They get to be a part of of the most significant act in all of history. And they respond by, by by rejoicing and giving freely. Every human on earth can and must respond to the same cosmic act of universal, universal salvation. It's something that happens for all of us. And so all of us are called to give that way. But there's other stories. Acts 4 is different. Acts 4 isn't like Acts 2. In Acts 2, they saw what God was doing for everyone, and they rejoiced. But in Acts 4, 
The joyful response of the church doesn't come from witnessing the advancement of God's plan of salvation for everyone. In Acts 4, the grace of God is much more specific. Peter and John, two of the definite leaders of the early church, had healed a, um, a beggar. And that drew the scorn of the Sanhedrin. And so they were brought to trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin drags them in and demands an explanation for Peter's brazen heresy for promoting Jesus as Lord. They demand, under whose authority do you do these things? What gives you the right to, do, to say and to do these things? Good things, by the way, like healing a beggar. But they demand to know in whose name they, Peter does it. And so Peter responds by outlining the reason for his belief so powerfully. And he is such a compelling witness and the Greek word for witness is martyr, he's such a compelling martyr, that the Sanhedrin decide that they have to let him go. Well, we'll beat him and we'll tell him never do it again, but they let him go. God delivered the leaders of this new movement from imprisonment and death, and the church as a whole then prays for strength and boldness to continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That's what they're responding to in Acts 4. That's why they were acting Grinch-like. That's why they rejoice together and give away their gifts in acts of sacrificial love. Why? Because God has been with them through incredible darkness and he has delivered them through his light. They almost lost their two, most, two of their most important leaders. But God was gracious. God was with them. God delivered them. In a, in a moment of real darkness and fear, God showed up with grace. And so they respond with joy. A joy that looks beyond their own needs and sees others in need. A joy that propels them to behave as their father had just behaved to them to give to others in ridiculous, painful, extravagant ways. God delivered, God gives the gift of releasing these leaders, and so they respond by giving freely to those in need as well. What God does for them, they do for others. But you know what? The model of God delivering people through incredible darkness and then those people responding with joy is not unique to the book of Acts or to cartoon works of art by Dr. Seuss and Chuck Jones. The Advent story is filled to the brim with similar stories as well. In Luke 1, which we read just last week, Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful followers of Yahweh who have suffered greatly by not having children, which in those days was the ultimate shame. But God sees them in their plight, sees them in their faithfulness, and despite old age, gives them a child. A child who will be instrumental in welcoming the Savior of Israel and the Savior of the world. John the Baptist. Their baby is John the Baptist, who is the herald that welcomes Jesus 30 years later. The angel tells Zechariah in verse 15 that he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. That's John the Baptist. That's not even Jesus. That's just the birth of John the Baptist. You will be filled with joy, and many will rejoice. Out of tremendous personal pain, the pain of not having children despite wanting nothing more, Out of tremendous personal pain and a faith that persists despite that pain comes unexpected joy. Later on in the chapter, we meet Mary, a penniless and insignificant young woman in a country full of thousands of people just like that. But this unknown girl is told she will miraculously give birth to Jesus, the Savior who will rule from David's throne forever. Her eventual response to this message is beautiful and stirring. We call it the Magnificat. It's Mary's poem of praise and celebration and joy at the news of what she will get to do. Although the word joy is never used in the Magnificat, which is Luke 1, 46 to 55, Mary's song of response is undeniably filled with joy. It is nothing but joy. She rejoices that God has chosen a nobody like her. She praises him for his mercy. She's astounded by his grace. She can't believe that all of this is happening. 
but she can believe it, and she responds to it with joy. She lived in the darkness of obscurity. Now she responds with joy for the gracious light of purpose and dignity offered by her encounter with God Most High. And then there's Luke 2, which we read just this morning. In Luke 2, we hear the angels pronouncing good news that will cause great joy for all people, the arrival of the Messiah. It's a message that will cause anyone to rejoice, but who receives this message specifically? Shepherds, a bunch of lowly shepherds who, like Mary, are noteworthy only for their nobodiness. They're just, the shepherd is the most common kind of guy there could be in, in those days. Jesus isn't pronounced to kings or to priests or to anyone important. Is pronounced to lowly shepherds. They are invited to the birth of a king. And when they see him, they respond very much like Mary and like the early church. They praise God for his grace. Out of darkness, literally, because famously they were guarding their flocks at night, out of darkness came beautiful light. And with that light came joy. Later in the chapter, we read about two more excellent examples of faithful servants who have endured all the failures and frailty of of human life. Simeon and Anna have known the pain of expectation, the hurt that comes with desiring one thing over all other things and living a full life without ever seeing that thing come to completion. That thing just hadn't happened yet. I I don't really know what that's like. There's nothing that I'm eagerly waiting for, maybe for my girls to be raised as strong followers of Jesus and see them be strong people in the church themselves. That's Everything else, whatever happens, great. Let it happen. But they longed and yearned and and were thirsty for the arrival of Emmanuel. That was their one true desire, is the picture we have of both Simeon and Anna. And once that desire was realized, at the very ends of their very long lives, once they lay their tired old eyes on the baby Savior, once their faithfulness and patience are rewarded with extraordinary grace, then they muster all the joy remaining in their weary bodies and use it to rejoice and thank God. Thank him for his grace. The grace of finally, finally seeing the light that they long to see in a life of dark hardship. To be a widow for 84 years in those days, or to be a widow from the age of, she probably got married at 14, and it says they were married for seven years. So from age 21 to 84 at least, she was a widow. And in those days, that meant basically hopelessness. That's a long time to to suffer in that way. And she waited and she waited in this life of dark hardship. And she was rewarded. She saw the light. In Matthew 2, which we'll read next week, the Magi search far and wide for the newborn king of the Jews. They're searching all over the place. Like Anna and Simeon, there's an element of, of searching patiently in the wilderness, wandering around, waiting for it to come, waiting for them to see what they came to see. And when verse 10 tells us they finally see the star blazing brilliantly in the dark of the night, they are overjoyed at the grace of meeting a king. And how do they respond in their joy? By giving freely of lavish, extravagant gifts to this baby born to some peasants in a barn. And finally, the last one, think of the whole story, the picture of the whole story as a whole, when God chose to send his son to Israel. Israel was trapped in one of its darkest eras, which is really saying something for that people group. God hadn't spoken to them in 400 years because they had been unfaithful. The Romans, after the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Greeks, have conquered and crushed them, stealing much of their identity in the process. We have, in Matthew 2, Herod going around committing genocide against infants. 
It's a very dark period of Israel's history. And yet Israel waits with bated breath for the arrival of the promised Savior, the Messiah, who would deliver them from their enemies and draw them back to himself. They looked for Emmanuel, God with us. They longed for him in their darkness and their loneliness and their pain. There is a lot of darkness in Israel when Jesus comes. Perhaps you know the pain of all these darknesses. I know, I'm sure you're experiencing at least one of them right now, and you have certainly experienced most, if not all, of these darknesses at some point in your life. The darkness of suffering and shame. The darkness of obscurity and loneliness. lowliness, The darkness of wandering and waiting. The darkness of needing a savior. You have experienced all of these, sometimes crushingly so. We are familiar with all these forms of darkness. But the story does not end for these characters or for the Grinch or for us in darkness. It does not remain in darkness. With the light of a star, a crowd of humble visitors, and some scandalous peasants in the middle of nowhere, Emmanuel arrives. God comes to his people. Like Peter in his jail cell in Acts 4, like Simeon in his longing, like Mary in her obscurity, like the Grinch freezing his feet at the top of Mount Crumpet, grace is born in the darkest of moments. And the result? Joy. Not mere happiness, which comes and goes like any other emotion, but joy. A joy that is transformational. You saw the Grinch, he undergoes a physical transformation in that moment of joy. His eyes go from red and mean-looking to now they're suddenly blue and lovely. And his countenance changes, and he's got a lovely smile rather than that grinchy, twisty, evil smirk that you saw earlier. He's still green, but his black heart is no longer black. In fact, it explodes out of him. It's so full. There's a a physical transformation that happens for this fictional character. But the transformation that, that happens when we encounter and embrace joy for us is no less transformational. This was the joy of the early church as well. The early church was a bunch of Grinches, but in the 2.0 version of what that word means. Not a bunch of Grinches because they hated anything that was happy and, and jubilant. They were, ha- they were Grinches because like our green cartoon protagonists, they were redeemed and transformed. In Acts 2, they encounter the Holy Spirit and they're changed forever. Not by the Christmas spirit, some vague glowing light in the middle of a bunch of cartoons. They were transformed by the Holy Spirit, who was very real and very present. The result of that transformation was that their hearts grew three sizes or more as they laid down any sense of selfishness or greed or injustice for the benefit of their brothers and sisters and for the glory of their risen Lord. Stuff meant nothing. Happiness was fleeting. They weren't concerned with that. Suffering was all around them. So they gave freely as they were transformed by joy. So this Christmas, that challenge is to you and to me as well. Whatever we have suffered through this year, and many of you have suffered greatly, All of us have suffered in some way. There's a lot of sadness in us and in people that we know. That's okay. It's okay to be sad. It's okay for things to be hard. It's okay to suffer and to acknowledge that suffering. But whatever we have suffered, we can still rejoice at a God who comes to us in the midst of our darkness and our pain. A God who shares our broken humanity, who then joins hands with us like the Who's, joins hands with us in a celebration of the goodness of life. It's the giving of gifts that brings joy to the giver and causes the receiver to rejoice. How do we respond to our Father's great gifts? 
most significantly, the gift of his very presence to us and in us and with us. How do we respond? Same way. Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel has ransomed captive Clyde, Alberta. So rejoice. After we rejoice and as we rejoice, we respond further by imitating our great father and giving gifts in return. He gives us all the gifts we need. So that's what we're called to do for people around us as well. Sacrifice so that others have what they need. That's what made the Grinch a hero. That's what made the early church such a great model for us. And that's why we have the recorded responses of Mary, the Magi, the shepherds, Simeon, Anna, and so many others. Because they received the light of love despite the onslaught of darkness. And it caused them to respond by devaluing stuff and revaluing others. Seeing people the way God himself sees people. For the glory of Emmanuel. It caused them to know joy and respond to that joy by spreading joy to others. Because the joy of Christmas is not found in ribbons or tags, packages, boxes, or bags, it is found in Jesus Christ. If that's true, then we can be Grinchy, truly Grinchy, in the true meaning of that designation, transformed by joy, to be givers of joy. Right now we're going to close by praying and then singing a song that I think wraps all of this up nicely, a song of rejoicing in the darkness. It's a song that sounds moody and dark, like it's very minor key, um, and appropriately so, because then the chorus comes and we rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. We're going to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But first I'll pray. Emmanuel, thank you that you have come and you are still coming again. We rejoice that you came to us with grace, full of grace and love, that you are still with us, filling us with grace and love in order to spread your joy to others. And so I pray that we would be a people marked by our willingness to give and to share, especially to those most in need. I pray that we would take this joy that we have in being saved by you, Jesus, and spread it and share it through the giving of of things, stuff, those things that don't ultimately matter. I thank you for the example of the early church, for the example of Mary and, and Anna and Simeon and, and the shepherds, and the example of the Grinch, people who are transformed by joy in order to spread joy. And I pray that we would be people who do the same. Thank you. As we sing, we rejoice to you, Emmanuel, that you have come and will come again. We pray all these things in your powerful name. Amen. Amen.